0: have a copy of the scriptures, or if you want to pull it up on your device in an app, we will look at Psalm 24, Psalm 24. As you're turning there, I want to make sure you're aware also that next Sunday uh, when we gather here, uh, we will be worshiping the Lord through taking communion, and um, we do that fairly regularly around here, uh, but also want to make sure we notify you when we're doing that because if I understand the Bible rightly, it's a really big deal for us to do that nonchalantly or flippantly, um, that God is not honored and uh, we are not caring for ourselves very well if we step into that moment without being sincere about who we really are in our hearts before God. And so communion next week, we're going to enjoy it. It's a moment of celebration, but want you to be so that this week uh, you can pray through Life You can let your heart sit before God, and He can show you anything that He wants to show you this week all right so in this this past week, uh, my family uh, had the the joy of going to uh, a football game. We actually had the joy of going to a couple uh, but one of the games that we went to uh, in particular. Uh, I had a little pep talk with my youngest, uh, my six-year-old, before we left, because what we've come to experience, and some of you are going to know this, is that you can go to a football game, and you might even get in for free, and yet you can leave, and I'm talking about like a junior high or high school football game, you can get in free and still leave having spent 50 to to $100, okay? Um, I, that when you come up to the concession stand, right? If, you, if you're like my friend, you know, uh, Micah Shank, I mean, when you got money, you probably don't understand this, okay? But, but I'm talking about for the rest of us, okay? When you're standing there and you're thinking, okay, this one wants this, I would like this, my wife wants this, and you're starting to add all this up in your head as you're reading the sign, and you're having to make life decisions, right? Like, you're going, I hadn't planned on refinancing the house, but I don't know... Right, like like it's hard, right? And when you have to do this once or twice a week for quite a while, you start to go, Man, this is adding up, this is becoming significant and so knowing this, having experienced this at the dinner table before we went to the specific game, I looked at my six year old and said, Hey man, eat. Make sure you eat because we are not getting concessions at the football game we are not paying for concessions because I already know he's going to want some concessions. And it was one of those moments and I, I pulled a, a plug from Parenting 101. <laughs> and if you're a parent, I'm sure you've done this. And, and, and I could tell, I just sensed that it, it wasn't resonating with him. He wasn't paying attention to what I was saying. And I said, hey man, did you hear what I said? He said, yes sir. And he said it too quickly. right? He said the right thing, but he said yes sir so fast that I knew. There's no way he evaluated if he even heard what I said. So I said, did you hear what I said? He said, yes sir. I said, tell me what I just said. He sat there for a minute and he went, uh, and then he actually did say it back to me. He said, You said we're not getting anything from the concession stand at the football game. I said, That's right, so eat. <laughs> now, how effective that was, I'm still not sure. Uh, we were about halfway through the first quarter and he came to me and said, Dad, can we get something from the concession stand? And I said, Do you not remember we talked about this at home? he went, No, I don't remember. <laughs> However, dad went, I said, remember we were sitting at the dinner table, and I said, we are not getting concession stands, and you said, yes, sir, and I said, no, tell it back, and then you said to me, and he said, yeah, 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 I remember that, and believe it or not, he actually chilled on the concession stand thing, praise Jesus, victory for dad, right, (laughs) but I I had him recall it back to me, say it back to me, because I was hoping that he would actually remember this, right, that he would recall this conversation that we had. See, we, uh, we put practices into place. We, we do certain things on purpose when we need to remember. When it's really important that we remember something, we get purposeful about it. It's no longer that we're just saying, I need to remember or I hope I remember. We start doing something about it. It's why some of you have left sticky notes on the fridge or on the back door that you'll see as you're heading out of the house. Anybody ever done that before? Yeah. Anyway, I don't know if you're like me. I'm so forgetful. I've had my fridge be so covered up that it's like I don't. This is just overwhelming to look at. This is not helpful. I'm stressed, and I'm just trying to get some milk. You know, right? This this is why we tell our phone. We we say set an alarm for this certain time, or we say remind me tomorrow to do this. It's why if you have a certain presentation at school or at work, something that you're going to need to communicate to a group, especially knees trembling in front of people, because nobody enjoys that, right? Right, That's why when we have those moments, we, we say it over and over again. We're riding down the road, and we're working on how we're going to say it, and we're thinking, I don't know if I pronounce that word exactly how I want to pronounce that word. I want to sound more fly when I pronounce that word. I'm going to try to say it. Right, We say it a lot. We get it out uh, in, in the open. We say it over and over again because, listen, we put reminders in place when the cost of forgetting is great. When we realize, hey, if I forget this thing, I can forget a lot of things, but if I forget this for work tomorrow, there's going to be trouble. I can forget a lot of stuff, but if I forget this moment to be present, my kid's going to be standing on the curb looking like they don't have a ride, because guess what? They don't. (laughs) Right? When, When it's absolutely crucial and critical that we remember, we put reminders in place. God knows us better than we know this, and God tells us many, 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 many times throughout Scripture that one word, remember. Tells us, remember what he's done, remember who he is, remember how he cares for us. Remember, remember, remember. He tells us because God knows that we're limited, finite humans and we leak. That things that we know, we tend to not know later if we don't purposefully, consciously remember. Today is going to have a little bit of that kind of idea, that kind of tone as we look at scripture today. Five weeks ago, we started a Bible study series on Sunday mornings called The Holiness of God and us. And I shared with you my personal belief that there's probably not a single word in human history that has been more regularly or more dangerously misunderstood than what it means to be holy. (laughs) Because so much depends on, so much is built upon, so much flows from what it means for God to be holy. And what the Bible's talking about when it calls us to be holy. And what the Bible's talking about, as we'll see for just a minute today, what it means when it calls us holy already. It says you are holy. What is that all about? Because if we misunderstand that, we'll find ourselves in an up-and-down journey with God. There'll be a lot of, of turmoil that doesn't have to be there. We'll be tossed about because we're going, I don't know, I think I'm holy, I'm not holy, that wasn't holy, this is holy, God's holy. Right? So we need to see it. And so for the last few weeks, we've kind of picked apart... An idea every week. And this week, we kind of want to have that remember week and kind of put it back together. We'll see kind of one concept that we haven't really dived into very far. But other than that, we're kind of just going to remember. We want to put the whole piece, the whole puzzle back together and zoom out and see the whole picture. To do that, we're going to look at Psalm 24, the first six verses. Psalms is a book of songs, many of which the early believers in God, followers of Yahweh, would have used for worship. They would have used it, um, and some of them were songs that they sang specifically when they were walking towards uh, the temple for worship. Some of them were songs they might have used in moments of worship, but these are songs primarily. So we're reading a song today, and in Psalm 24, the, the kind of underlying drumbeat you'll see is that it's talking about God, but it's specifically talking about him as the king of glory you'll see it's mentioned there several, several times, especially towards the end in verses that we won't dive into as much today. It just over and over again says, The king of glory is coming in. Make room for him. Open up your gates for the king of glory. Glory, I believe, we may have talked about this before, I believe glory most simply explained is just holiness experienced. So when we say that God is holy when when the bible then turns and talks about his glory it's saying i've seen this god who is holy when it calls us to glorify him it's saying respond to what you've seen when it talks about his glory filling the whole earth it's saying he's not just holy sitting up in a room somewhere he's holy out here available to and experienced by and encountered by you this is the idea i believe of my best understanding of what glory is and it's the underlying rhythm of this psalm is that we have a king, and he is the king of glory. He's the one who wants to show us the holiness of God. Psalm 24, verse 1 says this. It says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And it asks this question. Notice in the first two verses it makes some statements about God. But then it says this in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in its holy place? first couple of verses make some big statements about God. It says, everything in the entire created cosmos, everything in the world, everything on the earth even more specifically, it all belongs to the Lord. The fullness of, and so it's not it's kind of his, but somebody else has kind of got a little bit of ownership rights to it. It says, no, the fullness of everything that exists, it belongs to God. When God says, hey, give me that back, that's mine, every time he wins, It's his. Maybe I'm thinking about conversations with my kids from a couple days ago. Anyway, everything is his and it's his, it says, because he founded it. Right. It says it founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. I just say those of you who are, are meant to be very critical and you're thinking about a text, which is a good thing. This is not written to be a scientific book, right? So, so some would look at this and go, Hey, that's not accurate. That's not really how it is. So the Bible can't be trusted. This isn't a science statement. This is a poetic statement about the grandness of God and how he has created everything that we see. This week we experienced a whole lot of rain. How many million of raindrops did you probably experience in some way or another this week? On your windshield, falling on you as you sat in the rain at a football game and told your six-year-old he couldn't have concessions. As you stepped into your home and there was a puddle of collected, right, just many, many, many. Listen, every single one of those raindrops belong to God. It's all his. He created the whole system and how it works together. He put the whole deal together. And I think what the psalmist is trying to get us to see more than anything is he starts with that. He said, I'm going to talk to you about the king of glory, the one whose character you can understand and experience. But before we get there, I want to make sure you understand that he is the creator. He's the big one. He's the grand one. He's bigger than you. He's not just like you. And we need that remembrance. We need to know that. We do ourselves harm. We put ourselves in places that we need not be when we think that God's grace for us means that he's just like us that he's on our level, that his kindness means that he's cool with us, not caring about his holiness. God's kindness is never meant to turn a cold shoulder towards God's holiness. His acceptance of me is never a wink and a nod, an acceptance of my sin. And I believe that's what the psalmist is pointing out. He's saying, listen, we're going to talk a lot about this God, but think about this first. Every huge thing that you see, every mountain that you can imagine, possibly even scaling or getting to the other side of, When you stand on the ocean and you literally cannot see the end of it, and you're going, I don't know how long it would take to even swim out there to where I can see. All that big, grand stuff, all those intricate details of how it fits together and works together to sustain and continue, all of that is God. You couldn't have pulled that off. I couldn't have pulled that off. So I believe the psalmist is saying, get in your mind and in your heart a really big, pumped up, as big as you can, view of who God is. Does he love you? Absolutely. (laughs) Is he like you in some ways? Yes. But is he on your level? Is he the same as you? Absolutely not. We've said God's holiness is his ineffably awe-inspiring purity. It's beyond our full understanding or explanation how huge and how pure God is in every single way. I believe that's what he's wanting us to grasp onto. But notice this. Two things, two emotions, I believe at least two, are present for us in the response we see from the psalmist. He goes, I consider this big, huge God. And then what happens in verse 3, he says, that calls me to a question. When I think about this big, huge God, I say, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? It's interesting because I would think that on kind of gut reaction that you would see God as huge and holy and and I would tend to think just my personality type that there would be one response and it would be, the, the scared part of it. It would be, he's so big and so huge, or it would be the defeated side of it that goes, there's no way I could be anywhere near somebody that good. And it would be a fleeing from God. And you do see a humility because there is who in the world could stand... right Who could go up there to him? Who could make effort and make their way up to him? Who could climb that hill to be in his holy presence? And then even if you were able to get there, who could stand there? Who could be able to remain in the perfect presence of holiness? Because, man, who could do that? Do you see how humble that reflection is? Who could do it? But also there's, I believe, an eagerness to want to do it. I remember reading in a book years and years ago, I don't remember the author, I don't remember much about the book, but I remember him saying that Jesus was a weird kind of holy that made sinners want to be near him. He was contrasting it with what we popularly think of as holy in our actions as modern day Christians, where we think holy is oftentimes looking down our noses at others, being stern or being so straight-laced that we can't be around people who actually need to know Jesus. And even if we would allow ourselves to do so, they wouldn't want to be anywhere near us. And he said, Jesus was as holy as it gets. He is the personification of holiness, and yet people were drawn to him. <laughs> what you see is the psalmist going, here's this big, huge God, and my response to that is, too, it's to be really, really humbled in the sight of how big this God is, and it's also to have an eagerness to see who is it that could go and be close to him. One of my favorite movies growing up, probably my favorite movie of all time, I may have mentioned it before. It's an 80s cult classic. The name of the movie is called Rad. You had not seen it. Don't act like you have, okay? I appreciate you wanting to come for me, but you don't know it, okay? It's about this kid named Crew Jones, and he's really good at riding a bicycle. He loves it. It's where he feels alive. And he's competing to be in this big professional race, and and he has to overcome all these obstacles, and it's all great. But there's this moment where he goes on a bike ride with this girl, right? Because there's got to be a love interest, okay? And the girl happened to be Aunt Becky from Full House, which, when I was a young kid, was bonus points for the movie, okay? Um, I thought she was kind of neat, right? And and he's talking to her, and they're going to go for a bike ride, and, and they're just talking about their feelings. And he says, I'll never forget when I was a little kid, and my dad gave me this bike. He said, man, he he gave me this bike, he let me get on it, and he gave me a little push and let me ride it. He said, it was really too big for me, and I'll never forget, he said this, he said, it was scary, but it felt so good. It was scary, but it felt so good. This is the feeling you've had. When you've jumped into something and realized how big of a moment it is, how big of an opportunity it is, how big of a responsibility it is, and you go, man, this is huge in a way that kind of makes your knees quake a little bit, but you go, it's also really good, and I want to keep going. The first time maybe you drove a car by yourself, you've been big and bad and bold, like, I got this, I don't need anybody, and maybe you pulled off and you're like, wait a minute, nobody's here to tell me what to do. (laughs) You kind of go, whoa, this this is a big deal. The first time you maybe fired a weapon, got to carry one off by yourself somewhere and went, whoa, this feels like a lot. Maybe it's the first time you actually slept the first night in a house that you owned. Right? Every parent can acknowledge it's the night that you bring the first baby home for the first night and there are no more nurses coming in in the middle of the night. And you go from, I can't believe they come in here all night while I'm trying to sleep and they're waking us up, we've got a sleeping baby, they're waking us up to put monitors. You go from that to like, please come to my house, please. Right? Because man, this this baby is awesome and incredible and beautiful and wonderful and also what a big, huge responsibility is Scary in a sense, but it feels so good. You wouldn't dare turn away from it. You want more. I believe this is what the psalmist is wanting us to realize, that our souls experience when we see the glory of God. See, encountering God's holiness creates humble hunger for God's presence when we get a a true encounter with who God is, not just talk about him in some way that's dusty and distant from us, but when we actually go, hey, I really want to know you, God, and he does this awesome thing by grace and opens up our hearts to see accurately how huge he is in his holiness, when we encounter the holiness of God, it will create humble hunger to be in his presence. We won't be running at him arrogantly and going, God, I can do this, I can be near you, it's no problem. We won't run at him in pride based on our own experiences, our own performance. We won't be going, God, I can be near you because I did really good with this, this, and this two weeks ago. I got this right this morning. So, God, I can come and be near you. It won't be prideful. It'll be humble. It'll be all filled But it'll be hunger for the presence of God to say, yeah, I want to be there. I want to be in that place. There's something about this grand awareness of, This is shaking my soul a little bit. That also draws me to go, I want more of him. We encounter God's holiness. It creates humble hunger for God's presence. So He asks the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Verse 4 is going to give us an answer. He says in verse 4, this is the answer. Who can? Who can be near this God? Listen to the things that he says. Listen to the characteristics of the one that can be near. It's he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and who does not swear deceitfully. We've talked about what purity means. For something to be pure, it means completely free of spot or stain. 100% right. 100% clean. It says, if you're going to be one who's going to be in the presence of God, you must have a pure heart. <laughs> That's a big requirement. It says, if you're going to be In the presence of God, who can go and be near him? You're going to have to be one who has clean hands. And so we're going from the inward of the pure heart, working its way outward into our lives and our actions. And it's saying your walk and your way of life, the things that you do with your body, the things you do with your life must be blameless, meaning free of blame. Nobody could ever blame you and go, hey, you did this and they would be right. Got to have a pure heart and clean hands. That's the condition of the person who can come and be near this God. And then he gives us a couple, I believe, examples of outflows. This is what it's going to look like in your life if you're this person. He says, this person doesn't lift up his soul to what is false. Your soul is the part of you that matters most, the immaterial core of who you are as a person. You can exist without a whole lot of things that we think are absolutely... Crucial and that we must have, even medically, even physically, our bodies have, can exist in a lot of ways with things that we think we must have. But you're not a human without a soul. It says this most valuable part of you, do you take it and do you lift it up to something else that's false? And listen, false here I don't think is as clear cut as we might want it to be. <laughs> I, I think the idea of false means it's claiming that it's worthy of your soul. Whatever this thing is that you're lifting your soul up to and going, hey, look, I'm going to attach my soul to this so that I can feel good about life. I'm going to attach my soul to this so I can have peace. When he says it's false, I don't think it necessarily means that it's some really heinous act that's yelling out from the streets, I'm false. I think he means anything that would communicate to you or anything that you would allow yourself to believe that would sustain your soul in the way that only God can. Do you lift that up? Do you lift your soul up to that? It could look like a billion different things. It could look like your savings account. It could look like what you can prove that you've purchased with your money. It could look like your moral behavior. It could look like your school record. It could look like your business success. It could look like your team winning, which the dogs did. Barely yesterday. Anyway. I'm sorry. I had to do it. If that really messed you with your life with Jesus, you can email me this week. It's nick at Dublin Bible <laughs> Right? He's saying, are you a person who lifts up your soul to something other than God? Do you take the most important, most valuable part of you and try to attach it to something else? He says, and this person who has this pure heart and these clean hands, this will be a person who does not swear deceitfully, that you don't make statements, that you don't give communications from your life verbally or otherwise that would deceive someone else, that would try to trick someone else into believing that you're going to do something different than you really are going to do. That you wouldn't try to make somebody believe that you really are somebody different than who you truly are. And most of us maybe could be sitting here right now and going, well, yeah, I don't do that. I don't deceive people. But also most of us could probably recognize moments in our life where we've walked into a social setting and we're going, I want to make sure I stand here or say this or don't say this because I want to make sure they know I am filling the blank. There's nothing wrong with that. That's innocent in a big way. But I just point to that for us to see that maybe we have a proclivity to try to present ourselves different than we really are, more than we realize so, the answer from verse 4 is the person who has a pure heart, clean hands, and therefore doesn't lift up their soul to other things, and the person who never swears deceitfully, that's the person who can come into the presence of God. And so, here's what I'm going to ask you this morning pure heart, clean, spotless, unstained at all, clean hands, no sin. No dirtiness of darkness upon your life and your decisions and your actions. Never attaching your soul to that which isn't God. Never trying to deceive with your presentations to other people. Those four characteristics, is that you? Is that you? I think it's, it's a really weighty question and it's a really important question because remember this question for us tells us the answer to who can be with God. I'd be willing to bet that if we were all going to take time and explain what our first thought is, when we hear, is it you? There'd probably be a, a range of answers. There'd probably be some, no, that definitely is not me. <laughs> There'd probably be some, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not perfect, but yeah, that's me. There'd be some yes and no. Right? I mean, yeah, I'm trying to be that, but no, I'm not actually pure in heart. I'm not actually blameless. It's, it's kind of a yes and no, right? I'm sure somehow it could be a no and Yes. How do you answer that? What is the psalmist trying to get us to see? Because if the only people who can come into the presence of God are those who are completely pure in every single way of heart and completely clean in every single way of action, I don't know about you in your life. Maybe you had a better answer than I did. But if that's the truth and that's what I'm supposed to understand, that's not good news for Jason. I love God. I love you. I'm trying to honor him. I'm trying to lead and honor you. But just make sure you hear me scream it from the rooftops. I don't do that anywhere near blamelessly. So what does this verse mean then for somebody like me? Somebody like you? Which just means you're human. You're not holy like God is holy. I think the psalmist is wanting us to think about a couple of different things. First, clearly, I believe he's wanting us to think about the the big theological word is our sanctification, right? Sanctification, uh, another big theological word if you're into Googling, but I would say be careful. (laughs) A lot of crazy stuff out there, a lot of errant, wrong stuff, but, but, but some people would call it maybe imparted righteousness, imparted righteousness. For something to be imparted is for it to be made known or communicated. I believe what he's saying here is this. Yes, absolutely, you should strive to be pure in heart. You should strive to have clean hands and live a blameless life. Yes, sanctification is you partnering with God for him to redeem more and more of you, for you to become more like Jesus. For more of the sinful flesh, you without Jesus stuff, to be pushed out of your life. And more of the Jesus-loving, joy-giving, freedom-proclaiming Jesus part of you to take up space. That over your life, and at the end of your life, you would look back and you would look different than you used to look because you have grown in this personal holiness. This is what we've talked about several weeks ago, right? That my personal holiness is me making every effort to position my life to see and show the holiness of God. I want to do what I do and not do what I don't do so that I can see God more clearly. I I want to do what I do and not do what I don't do so that I can show God to the world. I believe this is an idea that the psalmist is directly speaking to is this, is that you will see God more clearly when you strive for holiness, right? You will. The, the scripture is really clear, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Hebrews 12, 14, strive for everything, with pe- for peace and for holiness, without which no one will see God. You can't see and enjoy God clearly if you're walking in willful rebellion against him. And so I wonder for my own life, and I wonder for us sometimes, how frustrated we are and we're going, man, I'm trying to do the good stuff. I'm trying to do the God stuff, but I'm really not enjoying God. Well, if, if in our minds, the idea of doing the quote-unquote good stuff or the quote-unquote God stuff is, I show up and hear about Him. I've got these four or five things that I don't do or do. I don't lie, right? I don't smoke, cuss, or chew and date girls who do, right? That's how we said it in Alabama, okay? Okay. I don't do this list of things and I do this list of things. I give some money to causes that are worthy and therefore I'm good to go. And God's going, no, the standard for you is my perfect holiness. It's your whole life. Not are you doing it perfectly, but are you aiming for it purposefully? (laughs) Am I going, hey, I want the way that I drive my car to honor Jesus. Uh Uh-oh. Am I wanting the attitude that I have with the checkout person at Walmart? Am I viewing that as a way to worship my God as much as I would view a conversation with an orphan in a hut in Africa about Jesus? Are both of those things worship? I believe he's saying, listen, you will see God more clearly when you pursue holiness more radically." So I think he's speaking directly to our personal holiness, our practical holiness. But I think he's also, just by the grandness of that question, by the stark contrast of God is holy, who can go there? Pure heart, clean hands. You go, wait a minute, bad news. <laughs> I think he's wanting us to lean into and maybe think about and realize what theologians would call the imputed righteousness of God. Imputed. For something to be imputed means it's considered as mine. Okay. That can be negative, that can be Positive. Give you a negative example. I have a friend whose name is Keith. He has an older brother whose name's Shane. Y'all don't know him, okay? I don't know that this happened, but I would imagine that it could have happened that Keith could have gone and sat down for his first day of school one day, and the teacher could have looked at Keith and seen the same last name that was attached to Big Brother Shane, realized they're brothers, and automatically attributed the same behavior, the same decisions, the same, what's he doing to Keith that belongs to Shane, right? Now, I don't know that that happened. Right? And again, y'all don't know these guys. okay? Right? But you've experienced this maybe. Right? When somebody thinks, hey, because you're a part of that group, it automatically means that you're this. right? Because you're a Georgia fan, it automatically means you're, see, I'm letting you fill in the blank. I didn't even say anything. right? Because you belong to this political party or lean in this direction, because you go here and don't go there, you do this. And, and man, they're making assumptions about you that aren't true. They're interacting with you they're corresponding with you they deal with you such that they assume those things are yours it's also true that it can be a a positive thing One wednesday night when i was a student pastor years and years ago we had had a really great night of worshiping god and man i'd been probably put in 14 hours at that point was a long day i was exhausted And I was driving home, and I remember I was thinking specifically about, I am so tired. (laughs) Like, I I, I hope nobody needs me to do anything else, because I need to go home, drink a little milk, go to bed. (laughs) I'm thinking that, and I get a phone call from a young man who was at the worship service. His name was Braxton. He'd been hanging out with us as a group for a little bit. I said, hello, and he said, hey, man. I said, hey. And it was one of those hey's where you say hey, but you don't know who you're talking to yet. And I was like, Hey. I hope he says something soon. Right. He did. He said, hey, man, this is Braxton. I said, oh, okay, what's up, Braxton? And I'll never forget what he said. First thing out of his mouth. I said, hey, man, hey, hey, this is Braxton. Okay, dude, what's up? Next Wednesday night, I want you to save me. <laughs> and I was almost on the road to my house. I was, I was almost home. And I'll just remember, like, it was like, like, Felt like something was exploding inside me. Like I don't know what to, and I just kind of pulled towards the side of the road and just slowed down because I was like, I'm, I'm about to have to talk to Braxton. Right? You see, because I was the youth pastor and I was the guy who tried to lead students to love Jesus. Braxton assumed that because I was in that mold, that I could somehow save him, which only God could do, right? And so it was a a gut check for me to make sure I'm making that really clear to these students. Hey, I want to help you, but I can't do what only God can do. It was an opportunity for me to explain the gospel to Braxton. But let me just tell you, when somebody literally says to you and literally thinks that in some way you can save them, that's a whole lot of weight. (laughs) It's neat because it means they think highly of you. It's an honorable encouragement in a sense, but it's also a whole lot of, oh my goodness, we're in trouble. See, he was imputing to me capabilities that I didn't have just because of who I was associated with. This is imputed. And the scripture is clear, I believe, that we are considered righteous, not because of everything that we do well or we strive in and go, hey, here's a win for my life. God took this out of my life. We're considered righteous. We're secure in our righteousness before God because we're covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Romans tells us that Christ is the end of the law for all those who have faith. Meaning that the law for salvation, me performing for salvation, is not the way it works anymore if I have placed my faith in Jesus alone for my hope. You know that there are even a couple places in the scriptures where God is not just telling you to be holy. He's not saying do the personal holiness thing, do the holiness actions. There are at least a couple times where he calls us holy already, like it's already happened. Colossians 3.12, he's given some direction, some instruction. He's telling us some things to put into our lives. And he says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and... Whatever else is on the screen. Patience. Right? He's saying, listen, as holy ones, you're already considered holy by God. First Peter 2.9. He says, but you are not you will be not one day, not future. This is uh, Peter talking to the followers of Jesus that he had led. And he's sending them a letter and he says, listen, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It should blow our minds that the big, huge, holy God, he looks at those of us who in all of our flaws and imperfections and daily rebellions, because we trust in Jesus for our hope instead of ourselves for our hope, that big, huge, holy God looks at us and interacts with us and communicates with us as if we are holy. There's, there's no more trying to be good enough. <laughs> Man, it, it seems honorable to be told, hey, listen, you're doing great. You're one of the leaders. You're more mature. But when that weight is, you have to continue that and continually, increasingly, only get better and do it, by the way, purely and perfectly if God's going to love you. That's not the gospel. <laughs> Remember in junior high, I was in seventh grade. My friend Dawn was in eighth grade, and she, as every other girl in the school, was crazy about a boy named Jamie in the ninth grade. I think he was supposed to be in the tenth grade. He was big. He looked manly. I just remember thinking, like, man, he looks like he's already uh, a man, right? <laughs> All the girls liked him. Thought he was cute. Dawn, trying to get his attention, she was super athletic, she she was like, man, I really, Jamie, 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 come on, let's, let's go out, that's what we used to call it, I don't know what you guys call it now, I don't know if you call it anything, right, we used to call it going out, I don't know why we called it that, we weren't going anywhere, we didn't have cars, right, but we called it going out, okay. Will you go out with me? She wanted to go out with him, so she him to go out with me. And it just so happened that on the day that she had written him this note for probably the 5,000th time, it's the day where we're doing the PE assessment where you have to do these certain different tasks in a certain amount of time or effort. And so they were timing us running a mile, and so he told her, if you run, now this is, he's saying this to like a 13, 14-year-old girl, okay, who's not like a trained runner. He says, hey, if you run a five-minute mile, I'll go out with you. It's like, right? Everybody was like, that's crazy. She, don't even, she straight went for it, y'all. <laughs> right? Dawn said, game on. Right? She laced those sneakers up and got after it. Right? Now, I don't know if she really broke five minutes or if it's just legend that lived, but, but supposedly she did it in just under five minutes, and Jamie said, okay, I'll go out with you, and I'm sure that lasted for two or three days. Okay? But I'm telling you that story because... Man, that's silly and that's funny to think about that moment. But imagine yourself with the insecure soul of a young girl who's trying to get the affirmation of the super cool older guy. And imagine yourself being out there and being tired and being ready to stop pushing so hard and thinking, there's no way I can do this. But you're striving and you're trying and you're pushing with everything you've got just to get his stamp of approval. And I wonder how many times in our lives as followers of Jesus do we have a very similar emotional stance in our souls. We're going, if I just enough, if I try enough, if I go for it enough, then what I'm hoping that you can hear is that it's not your righteousness that makes you approved by God in relationship acceptable to God. It's Jesus' righteousness. So who can stand In the presence of this holy God. Who can ascend this hill? Jesus. He can. He has. Who can stand there? Who's there forever? Jesus. Pleading his righteousness on our behalf? Who's doing that? Jesus. He can. And he has. And it's that very security of the fact that I have perfect acceptance from God, that he looks at me, interacts with me as if I'm holy in the real way, the big way. Holy. He loves me that way. He appreciates me that way. It's that awareness that drives me then to go, therefore, I want to choose personal holiness. See, my fight for holiness enjoys what Jesus' holiness has guaranteed. He's bought it. He's paid for it. He's made it true. It's true every day of your life, always, forever. If you are a follower of Jesus now, you always will be. You are righteous before him. God sees you as holy because when he looks at you, he sees the holiness of Jesus upon you. Think of Isaiah 61, I believe it's verse 10, says, He has clothed me in a robe of righteousness, that he looks at us and sees righteousness, holiness. And realizing that is the thing that should fuel us to go, I know I'll never live in such a way that guarantees that standing before God. But because I have been graced that standing before God, I don't want to play around with things that obscure my vision of him. I want to pursue personal holiness. Do it because I want to. What does it look like when we live that life? Verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. You will receive blessing, he says, if you're the one who can go into his presence. Or now we can understand assuredly. Right, That we can receive the same blessings, we can receive the same kind of honor, the same kind of love, the same kind of standing before God that Jesus has because he has done it. And God reckons with us as if his is ours. He says you can have this blessing, you can have good things poured into your life. Now they may not always feel good, you may not understand them as good, it may not be the good you wanted, it might be the good that you need. But God will bless this person who trusts in Christ. And therefore lives like Christ. He will bless this person and he will give them righteousness. I believe this is just another image of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He's saying, you've got it. You're secure. And here's the statement, which I think has to come with the question, verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Listen, would that be true of us, Dublin Bible Church? Don't get too technical. You're going, well, my generation's actually not the same as that generation over there. Now, would we be a people gathered together in this day and time, in this moment of history? Would we be a people gathered together right in the center of of Lawrence County and Dublin? Would would we be a people who we would go, hey, I'm not just going to be associated with Jesus, affiliated with Jesus. I'm not just going to write his name as my religious choice in hopes that one day I get to break the entrance of heaven. No, no, no. I'm not just going to be affiliated or associated. I'm going to seek God. And the way that I seek God is through my fight of holiness. I'll make the decisions about what I watch and don't watch. What I listen to, don't listen to. What I say to my kids, what I don't say to my kids. Where I go and don't go. How I spend and don't spend. I will look at all of those things as God leads me. I will leverage them all. To see and show him. Are we those people? That's the question. Are we that generation? The band's going to come. And sing. And maybe you need to stand and sing with all your heart. Maybe you need to find a friend to pray with. Come find me. I'll be close to the front. I'd be glad to pray with you. Talk with you if I can help. But listen. The question is. How do we respond to what we've heard? Just after that verse we just read, there's a little word written in your scriptures that says selah. We've talked about it before. It means pause and contemplate or pause and consider. That's what we're going to do. So we can do that maybe by singing. We do that by talking with a friend and asking for help or accountability. We do that through writing down a thought that we need to process with God later. Do whatever is genuine in response to God that honors him. Just don't do nothing. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time to have considered your holiness and our holiness in light of yours. I thank you for your word that makes your grandness abundantly clear, that doesn't let us skirt off minimizing you and, and making you tame, but tells us you are bright and radiant and strong you are pure in every facet of your being. God, let us be glad worshipers of yours when we come to this place to sing. Let us be glad worshipers of yours when we go to our workplaces to work, when we go into our dens to do family. God, just let us be glad worshipers because we see the grandness of your holiness. Not fully, we'll never fully get it, but help us, God, to to see it and be in awe. And therefore be worshipers. Make us those kind of people. Make us that kind of church. Lead us now and individually how it is that you want us to respond. Show us what it is in our lives that we need maybe to find a friend and confess. God, show us what it is that we need to place on the table before you and not pick it back up again. Let you have it. Lead us as we seek to respond. We ask it all for your name, Jesus. Amen.